Welcome back to Footsteps in the Attic. I could not be more excited to have this episode tonight because this is the culmination of our special Halloween series on Mischief Night. And I happen to have with me the expert and the go-to guy for Halloween collectibles. He runs the site HalloweenCollector.com and he has made appearances on television uh, shows such as American Pickers for his expertise in the field. He's also the author of Vintage Halloween Collectibles, and he literally, yes, wrote the book on Halloween collecting. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Mark Ledenbach. Mark, how are you, sir? Brian, thank you very much for having me. I am well. Uh, It is so exciting to have you here. I could not tell you that like more how happy I am to have my two loves, which is all things spooky and collecting in one topic tonight. So you were the guy to come to. Well, thank you. It will be fun. I'm looking forward to our conversation. (laughs) Um, So Mark, of course I have to ask you what got you into the world of Halloween collectibles? Complete fluke. (laughs) I was uh, shopping in a local antique store in 1988, and I went in, and the woman that was running the store is someone I didn't know, but later became a very close friend, and we're still friends. She's 88 years old, and she asked me if, uh, if I would help her move some boxes. I didn't know her, so it was sort of an odd ask, uh, but I helped her move some boxes from her back room to the front. And I opened the boxes, and inside were all these old Halloween decorations. And I asked her, Barbara, what what are these? And she told me, and it was literally that moment I decided this is really wonderful stuff, imagery that I hadn't seen before. And I bought, and this is 1988, I spent, I remember I spent $300. And $300 back then was a lot of money. Yeah, sure. But it was a lot more then. But I was able to buy a lot uh, with that $300 because prices were significantly lower back then than they are now. And that's how I got started. And then I, I would always go out to antique stores very regularly from that point on. This was well before eBay. Um, <laughs> right. So you, if, you, if you wanted to buy stuff like vintage Halloween, you had to go out and you had to pound the pavement. It's much easier today, and frankly, I think it's a little more boring. That's what I was was thinking the same thing. It's a little more fun when you have to pound the pavement and look through things and discover. It's so true. And and in fact, I used to have this this routine that around Labor Day, I would – I would go up to Seattle. I had a friend there. Still, he still lives up there. And we would spend a week going up and down the coast between Seattle and Portland, hitting every antique store. And I would just walk in. Do you have any vintage Halloween? Most of the time they said you need to come back in October, which is the mentality, which was the mentality then. Today, if you if a dealer is lucky to have vintage Halloween, they'll put it out whenever they get it because it just sells year round. Yes. But back then you had to be disciplined. You had to be out and you had to have money with you and you'd have to go in and say, do you have vintage Halloween? I'm, I'm here. I'll wait while you go in the back room and get it. I've got cash. I will buy it today. Yeah. And that was a lot of fun. Today, it's much more dull. 
because a lot of dealers, if they have Halloween, they will put it on eBay. Right. And so you, you become more like an armchair adventurer rather than somebody that goes out into the wild. Um, I, I, I miss those old days. Oh, no, I completely understand. And you're right about the desirability because what a lot of people don't know is Halloween actually outsells Christmas. So it is a very highly sought after subject matter. And I'm very curious, what are some of the things that your private collection consists of? And what is the most priceless item in your collection to you? Well, that's a tough question. Um, I'm sure it is. I've <laughs> been collecting since 88, and I mainly collect paper-based items. Yeah. Not, not exclusively, but, I mean, I have my a good number of German composition candy containers and nodders and lanterns, things like that. Those are not my favorite things. I will buy them because they're interesting, but I really like paper die cuts that you hang on the wall um invitations uh, to parties back from the 1920s tallies place cards um paper-based items that were used as tabletop decorations things like that those are my those market segments are really my my first second third loves well it's, um, it's good that you you do that because you know as you know ephemera can be can get lost. So when somebody like yourself cherishes it, it's good because you are saving it. Yeah, in fact, there's uh, a few years ago I went on my my website and I, I forecast that small paper, what what we call small paper, which is invitations, tallies, and place cards, that they were due for a gigantic run up in price because. As the first generation of collectors, collectors that started collecting before 1975, I consider those people first generation. As they start to die off, their collections are going to flood the market. And they almost exclusively collected German candy containers and lanterns. They did not collect paper. And so there won't be, I said several years ago, there won't be a lot of small paper coming onto the market because it wasn't until third generation, I consider myself third generation collectors, really started paying attention to it. And that forecast was was very accurate. Um, And so over the intervening years, prices for small paper had outpaced many other market segments. But I will say that this year, 2023, I've really noticed that really, especially good ones, the German candy containers have gotten uh, the wind to their back and the prices for uh, unusual examples have really risen. Um, Now, they're not my first love. There's a lot of them. And I, I like the paper, but I'm always open to find whatever catches my eye. Sure. And then you're the guy to go to because you wrote the book. You've done all the research on these items. And I'm curious, um, what is the rarest item that you've come across over the years or one of them? Well, um, I have a game made by a company that was based in England called Spears. And um, Spears, I have a Spears Halloween ring toss game. Wow. And it's a very beautiful game. There's only a handful of 
examples that are known to exist. And I have, they had a large and a small version. I've never liked the small version, so I've never really wanted it. But I have the large version and I love it. And it's one of my prized possessions. Um, and then some of the paper items. I have some really early items that were produced by a company called Bystel. And they're still in business today. But back in the 1920s, they were arguably the preeminent paper manufacturer of holiday goods. And some of their place cards and some of their invitations from anywhere from 1920 to about 1931. They're extremely desirable, very hard to find. And I have, I'm, I'm really proud to say that I have one of the, probably the best collections of paper anywhere. And they bring me a lot of satisfaction and joy when I see a lot of this paper. So interestingly, some of the rarest and, and truly most desirable pieces are paper-based. And for instance, if I give you one more example, there were there was a company called Denison. Again, Denison Avery is still in business today. In 1909, Denison decided, you know, we're going to try to market our Halloween crepe paper to end users. And we're going to do that by publishing this book. And we're going to call it the Denison Bogey Book. And so they did they did a book called the Denison Bogey Book in 1909. It apparently was a flop. I, I don't know that for sure, but they <laughs> didn't do another bogey book until 1912. And I have the only known copy wow. of, the two, uh, of the 1909 bogey book. Now, are there other copies? I, I they, they almost have to exist somewhere, but no one has come forward. And even the Denison archives in Massachusetts does not have a copy of their own bogey book from 1909. And so that would be another piece that not much to look at, but people, collectors who are in the know, realize that they'll probably never lay their eyes on another copy. Wow. Now, I'm curious, um, Mark, how has the imagery of Halloween changed over the years? Like, what what images predominantly did you see in the artwork in the early 1900s, whereas it progressed, you know, more into the 50s? Did did you see a, a like a recognizable change in subject matter or has it always been consistent? I, I would say the iconography of Halloween has remained largely consistent. It's how that iconography has been portrayed that has drastically changed. And here's here's what I mean by that. The items that were produced commercially produced Halloween items other than postcards, which started around 1907. Um, I'm excluding postcards. Most commercially manufactured paper items didn't really get going until about 1909-ish, somewhere right around in there when Dennis was putting out a lot of crepe paper. And then as more and more items came to market that were more finished, the iconography was scary. So you'd see devils, witches, ghosts, bats, owls, things like this, uh, black cats. And back then, 19, pre-20s and all the way through definitely the 30s, 
the imagery is is scary, not gory, a scary, yeah, unsettling. And the reason that it was that way was that Halloween was really an adult holiday. Yeah. It was not a kid focused holiday as it is mainly today. Now, then the war comes, World War II comes, production is is disrupted, and it really sort of gets back on track in 1946. And for the first few years, 46 to 49, I'd say, the imagery remains scary, but it's beginning to soften a little bit. And then by the 1950s and certainly into the 60s, it becomes not threatening. It becomes friendly. The ghosts become really friendly rather than scary. The witches become more rounded, round-faced. They smile. They don't grimace. Um, the devils are like little hot stuff from the Harvey comics, right? not the scary, you know, truly terrifying devil imagery that was produced in the 20s. So the 50s, you see a marked change in in the iconography. And then sadly, in the 1970s, I think uh, the movie Halloween came out. Yeah. In, I don't know what year that came out, actually. It's a sk- uh, slipping my mind now. I don't know if it was 74. Yeah, that's a, I, I, it was a fairly early 70s. You're right. I'm trying to remember myself. Yeah, and by that time, things had become more gory. And so Halloween imagery that you could go out to a store and buy things that you would put up on the walls, it would have, you know, faces that were bloodied or there'd be bloody knives or hatchets or maybe a face with an eye hanging out. That was really gory. And I don't care for any of that. And and so my collection pretty much stops at about 1965. I, I have very little that was commercially produced um, after 1965 because I just don't I, I don't really care for that. Yeah, you and like that, the classic Halloween. I I, I do too. I like scary. Yeah, right? I don't yeah, like me gory too. and bloody. Um, it's that's too easy. Uh, it, it's too easy to create something like that. But if you look at some of this early, uh, uh, the the early commercially produced items by Denison or by Bystol or by Gibson, any of these great companies. They were inventive and unsettling. Yeah. Today, you know, so today, like Bystel today has gone back to reissuing some of their classic designs because that is what the market wants. And I, and I have to say, I'll just put in a little plug here for Bystel. Bystel is a very um, collector friendly company in that their newly released uh they they have released designs that were originally released in the in the 30s let's say and they label them as such it's 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 very difficult for a scam artist to try to pass off the new items that Bystel is producing yeah. as old because Bystel has done the responsible thing by by labeling and changing the colors and in many cases changing the dimensions of items so as not to confuse or rattle the collector market and um they they actually reached out to me back at the turn of the century around 2001 ish somewhere right around in there and they really wanted they they sought out my opinion about ways they could um still sell newly released redesigns 
as well as old items without disrupting the market. And I've always appreciated them doing that. I'm with you because I collect, I have, I love the old paper mache Halloween pumpkins with the insert and the black cat. And, but I see that they come up with some pretty good forgeries nowadays. And it's nice to hear that a company is being responsible so a collector can tell the difference and not get duped. Yes, absolutely. So Bystol, you know, hats off to Bystol. Sadly, other than Bystol, there are a lot of scam artists out there who will will try to sell items that are definitely not vintage as vintage items. Now, there's probably a subset of those people that don't really know that what they're selling is either either a fantasy item, and a fantasy item is an item that never does not have a true vintage counterpart. Right. So that's a vintage. That's a um, uh, that's different than a reproduction. So a reproduction is just that they they have a vintage counterpart. They've made new ones. Sometimes these newly made items really look old. They they try to they try to make them look old, and new collectors get duped. And as as you know, because you collect as well. Prices are high enough now that you really, if you get duped and you're out sometimes a hundred to five hundred dollars, yeah, and that's a huge hit. And there's really no way to get your money back other than going back to the seller, right? So, so yeah. I would say that today's collector of vintage Halloween, they have to be educated. Yes, you, they should go to HalloweenCollector.com. <laughs> and they should message yeah. you before they make Absolutely. any giant purchase. <laughs> Absolutely. Buy the book. And there are other fine books out there. Um, they have, they're largely out of print, but you can get them on eBay and stuff. There's a, a book called, uh, I think it's just called Halloween Collectibles. And it's by a, a, a married couple who sadly have both passed away now called Campanelli. And it's a really fine book. Um, so there are books out there in, you know, in addition to mine, but I will say, and I'm biased because I'm the author of mine, that my book is the one that really ties together a lot of market segments all under one book. Yeah. And, uh, one, you know, set of covers and it's, it's a book that sells really well. And, um, I'm very pleased that the, that the collecting community has so warmly embraced it. Well, and justifiably so. And I'm, I'm just curious, what is your personal favorite imagery when you look at something you've collected over the years? Which, you know, is it a witch? Is it a ghost? Is it a pumpkin? Is it a black cat? What, what really gets you going? <laughs> well, you know, if you look at Halloween iconography and you, and you view it as a pyramid, the, the base of the pyramid, the most common imagery are jack-o'-lanterns, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, and, and and you would expect that. And the next tier would be black cats, and the next tier above that would probably be witches. And as you get closer to the top, things like crows, bats, and devils, they are less common. Mm. And I don't. I mean, I like I like all of it. I would say that I like the ghouls and the ghosts and the scarier witches more than really anything else yeah but i'm not a discriminator i like it all if it's if it's vintage it's in good condition 
um, then it's something that I, I will I will strive to own if I don't don't have it already. And can we talk, Brian, just a moment about condition? Of course. So condition is extremely important when you're going to buy collectibles. And with Halloween versus, and I'll compare it with Christmas because it's a, it's a really interesting and logical comparison. I don't know about you, but for me, uh, any Christmas item, like an ornament or something that went around the tree, anything like that was treated with reverence. Right. It would be carefully packed away every year and carefully unwrapped for the new year. And and so there's a lot of vintage Christmas out there that's in near mint or better condition because people actually cared and care. Excellent point. Vintage Halloween, very different. No one really cared. Back then, remember that it was adults putting on parties. Uh, they would go to the store, a Denison stationery store. They, they'd buy from uh, you know, any of these uh, five and dimes that were operating everywhere back then. And they would decorate, they'd grab stuff and they'd decorate for a party and they'd have their adult friends over and they'd play games like, uh, uh, like bridge or canasta or mahjong or whist. And they would give away prizes at these parties. And then the party's over. And the next day, if not that evening, the tired host would just rip down everything and they toss it because no one gave a damn about Halloween. Right. And and so today, if you're going to look for and buy vintage items from especially the 20s, it's really difficult to find one in near mint on any item near mint complete condition. It's because no one really cared about it. Now, when I say no one, obviously there are a lot of exceptions or people that were forward thinking, careful. Maybe they were careful with their money and they would just say, hey, I could probably use this next year. I'm going to carefully pack it away. But those people were the exceptions. Yeah. Same, Most same. people just. Yeah. No, no, I was going to say, and it's the same with vintage Halloween costumes. You know, they were, they put them on and they predominantly threw them out. I, I have a couple of vintage masks that, you know, are fairly old, but most of the time uh, they just went in the trash. All right. It's uh, November 1st. We're done. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and that, and that sensibility, that mindset, if you will, it really permeated Halloween. Now that changed in, I think as the decades rolled on, it started to change in the 50s. And so if you're going to find vintage Halloween, you're going to find it's more likely you'll find stuff from the 1950s, mid 50s forward. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Star Wars comes out in 77 and Star Wars changed uh, I, I believe, arguably, Star Wars really changed the collecting mentality where Kenner especially was putting out loads and loads of new stuff and kids would buy it and they would keep it mint in the box. They wouldn't even play with the stuff. Including Halloween costumes. <laughs> yes, exactly. And so you can pretty much put a stake in the ground, 77, 78, and there's collecting before Star Wars and there's collecting after Star Wars. And and these companies like Franklin Mint and Bradford Exchange, et cetera, et cetera, they would put out these limited editions. And of course, most everything, not, not everything, but most everything marketed as a limited edition really was sort of like a money pit. 
Yeah. And with Halloween, there was nothing back in the 20s and 30s that I know of anyway that was marketed as a limited edition. And so items that were produced, especially post-77, they're really common. Halloween, Christmas, whatever holiday you want, because of the collecting mentality that took root after Star Wars uh, started to really change the way people approached collectibles. Um, oh, no, excellent point. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that somebody pointed out to me years ago, and I thought, you know, that is so true. And so for me, I don't, I like things from the pre-20s all the way through about 1955. That's yeah. sort of my... That's my range. And now, yes, do I own things from the 60s? Sure. I, I own, you know, some items for sure. Do I covet them as much as I covet the earlier items? No, I, I don't. But if I find them, sure, and they're in nice shape. But I did want to talk about condition. Condition is really key. And condition is gated by the fact that so many people back then just threw away things. And so today, if you find a die cut, and a die cut is just either thick pressed cardboard or thin pressed cardboard printed and you just hang it on a wall. And if you find one that's pretty nice, got its nice colors, not a lot of tape, not a lot of pinholes, and you find one of these from the 1920s and 30s, wow. I mean, you're talking really rare yeah. to find one in good shape. Sometimes they're worth a lot of money, a shocking amount. Sometimes they're not. It all depends on how common that particular item is of course it, it seemed like a lot of german companies produce the die cuts is that correct uh, like a, a lot of european companies produce that yeah the germans mainly the germans had lost world war one and they were gated by their loss by what kind of materials they could work with easily by the treaty of versailles and so they needed to make money to pay their war debts called reparations. And so what the Germans did, starting really in about 1920, let, uh, let's say it might be arguably earlier than that, like 1919, but let's say 1920, they put out beautiful paper hol holiday decorations of all kinds. It doesn't matter, Halloween, Christmas, Easter, Valentine's, some of the very best items in the 1920s were German produced. Now with Halloween items specifically, Germany then did not celebrate Halloween. And so every single thing that they produced was for the American five and dime market. So Wal uh, Walgreens, I, I don't know about Walgreens, but uh, Woolworths is what I meant to say. Right. Five and tens, Kresge, these five and dime stores, they would just buy anything that the Germans could produce. And the Germans were thrilled to produce it because they needed to make some money. And they were dealing with paper. So if you can find German items made out of metal, they didn't do a lot with metal uh, compar comparatively. And so the German metal pieces from the 30s are pretty, pretty sought after and, and pretty hard to find. But you're right. Uh, the Germans put out some of the very best die cuts. Now, sadly, uh, the scammers started to, when the Berlin Wall fell, I think the Berlin Wall fell in 91 or something like that. So very soon thereafter, all of these people started to say, hey, we just found this huge cache of die cuts. 
that were lingering in these warehouses in what used to be East Germany. And look at them. They're beautiful. They're, they're mint. And please buy them. And it was all fake. It was all stuff that was newly made. And, um, you can, you can go back and look at catalogs that were put out by holiday dealers. There were uh, several of them that were quite good at that time, well before eBay. And you can go and look at their catalogs and, and you will see that starting exactly in 1995, this huge flood of reproductions and fantasy pieces hit the market. And, you know, I go around and I have a lot of people that welcome me into their homes to look at their collection. It's really quite an honor to, to be able to go and look at their collection. But I always tell them, listen, if I see something that is not vintage, I'm going to point it out to you. Yeah, I'm that's good that you do that. No, I want to do that. Is that all right with you? And they'll be like, please. And so I go in, I'll be like, oh, I'm so sorry. That item was produced sometime after, during or after 1995. And, you know, Brian, I, I can't begin to tell you how many people's faces have just fallen because they spent $300 on something right? or, you know, $150 on something. And yeah, it looks nice, but it's not vintage. Well, you you know, you're doing them a favor, even though it hurts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It hurts. And so that's why I said earlier that no matter the methodology, even if it's just talking to other collectors, get educated. You don't have to buy books. You, you can just keep your mind open and pay attention to when you're seeing vintage items. What does it look like? What does it feel like? What, how big are they? What's the materials that they're made from? How do they smell? All of this stuff is stuff that you should be filing away because it'd be different if, if I'm talking about collecting Hummels, which sadly, you know, no one collects Hummels today that I know of. Right. Or if, if you do collect them, you're thrilled because the prices are so low, right? So we're not talking about Hummels. We're talking about Halloween, which sadly for, for me now, because I don't buy very much, it's just so expensive. If you misstep, you're out money, big money. Right, right. Not, not 20 bucks. So, I, if for all the listeners out there, do your research. You don't have to buy books necessarily. Just visit websites like mine or others. Go on places where people congregate and talk about Halloween. Um, go out in the wild and talk to dealers. Go to shows. And that the shows will always have holiday dealers. It's, it's a common thing. They're wonderful people, most of them. And, and talk to them and, and understand what's out there and become educated because you don't want to waste money. Very, very wise words. And Mark, I'm very curious. You mentioned big money and I know my listeners will be curious. You've seen a lot over the years. You've been to a lot of homes to see collections what, in your opinion, is considered for Halloween collectors like the holy grail item that they would want to have or, you know, an example of one that's highly, highly desirable? Well, I would say that there there was a percentage of German candy containers that were produced in the 20s. And they were produced in Germany under contract to high-end department stores. Um, that back then, these wonderful department stores would have departments dedicated to holiday 
collecting or right. holiday decoration, I should say. And so there is, there, there is a segment of, of vintage candy containers and nodders made out of composition from Germany that were made for export to these high-end retailers. And it's hard to describe, but when you see them, you know that it's a very high-end piece. They're generally on circular, thick wood bases. Their paint is beautiful like it was um, applied with a special spray gun. I mean, it's just absolutely beautiful and some of them are quite ornate there's tree trunks there are all kinds of like jack-o'-lantern people mm -hmm. in fact uh, on one forum not long ago there was one of the most beautiful lanterns i've ever seen and it was an acorn lantern an acorn halloween lantern and wow. it sold for I don't remember precisely what it sold for, but it might have sold for around $13,000. Wow. And I know that in the collecting community, people were like, I'm not certain if that's a vintage piece. And my feeling was that anyone that would say that didn't know what they're talking about because <laughs> it was absolutely a vintage piece. And any any person that knew anything about vintage Halloween knew instantly that this is a treasure. And so those are very high-end items, um, and they are really holy grail pieces for people who collect that market segment, uh, you know, assiduously. I collect paper, yeah. and so some of the best paper is really beautiful invitations that Beistel put out around 1930. They're very rare. I, you know, the depression, um, the stock market crash happened in October of 29. And by 1930, 31, the Great Depression that we call it now, they didn't realize they were in a Great Depression at the time, but it was really encircling checkbooks and, and bank accounts in 1930 and 31. And these companies like Beistel, they were trying desperately to sell things, but people didn't have the money to buy it. And so items that were produced from 30 and 31, Beistel, they really didn't sell many. Many of them were just sent back and were burned or destroyed in some way. And so today, these are very, very desirable pieces. Now, they're just little pieces of paper, and they will bring $3,000, $4,000 if you wow. can find one in perfect shape. Now, they don't all bring that. Um, but some of them do. And so the, the really holy grail pieces, there's always going to be a marketing for it. And, and if I may just expound on that, if I have a moment, yeah, Brian, sure. if you know, you have these sites, these, you know, public selling sites like eBay, for instance, or Etsy and items that I, I put items in categories, ABC. It's real simple. A is like, wow, they're really good items. You just don't see them very much. These are midline, wonderful items that you're, you, you may not see very often, but they're there. And then C-level items are still great items, but they're common. They were made for a long time. Uh, there's a lot of examples out there. On eBay, um, you're going to see a lot of BC, and they bring, you know, good money. If you have an A-level item, eBay sometimes is a good form for that, and sometimes it's Better forums are like the auction houses, Bertoia or Morphe, for instance. Um, and so 
where things show up sometimes is a function of how good they are. Now, I will say that acorn lantern that I just referenced, that actually showed up on eBay. So it was an unusual kind of listing for eBay. And yet it did astoundingly well, bringing twelve or $13,000. So it, it's interesting how people have gotten used to spending that level of money in more casual places than an auction house, like more yeah. of your report. No, very, so. very well said. No, you're absolutely right. And, you know, thankfully there's somebody out there who appreciated that item that knew what it was or, you know, and, and, you know, it probably most likely anyway, wound up in the right home. Somebody who will really absolutely. cherish it. Absolutely. And, and I have to imagine that it is the centerpiece of yeah. their collection. Now, speaking of centerpiece, do you keep your Halloween, you know, stuff up all year round? Is there a designated room in your house or do you kind of keep it on a low profile and keep it uh, contained? <laughs> well, my house is not really large, uh, uh -huh. but my collection is. And so nice. I leave mm -hmm. the vintage stuff out year round. That's and, fun. I love that. Yeah. Most <laughs> of the time. Other than September and October, I, I actually don't see it much. I just whip through the, the rooms that it's in, and I yeah. don't really pay a lot of attention to it. My friends that come over, they don't even look at it. They're like, what's on television? Rather than, wow, what's this? Unless you're a collector and you come over and you pay attention. But the newly made stuff, like I have a seven-and-a-half-foot pre-lit, black Halloween tree and I have it decorated with ornaments and stuff, that kind of thing, or any Halloween villages that light up, all of that is packed away. And sadly, because tomorrow is Halloween, I cannot believe this season has gone by so fast. Right. I'll start packing things up on Wednesday. And by, by Sunday, all of the newly made items that are seasonal accents, they'll all be, and sadly, Right. I was going to say, <laughs> with a heavy heart. That's right, with a heavy heart. And all, and all the vintage stuff, vintage is out all the time because I wouldn't have any place to put it. Right. And if I Understood. might say, I have, yeah, go ahead. Good, I have two good collecting friends. Um, one of them that lives nearby, one lives in L.A., actually two in L.A., and they only put their Halloween stuff out seasonally their whole collections come out in september and i have to say i've always envied them a little bit because when they open all their storage uh tubs or however they store them all their boxes it's it is like being reacquainted with old friends right right and i don't have that um I don't have that joy that comes from unpacking because it's always out. I get it. So I, I have certain items too, that are just always out and I, I totally get it for space reasons. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could pack everything away and then in September, take it out and be like, wow, I didn't even remember I had this, <laughs> but I just, I just can't, uh, I just can't do that uh, because I've been collecting so long and I hit it really hard. Uh, the first, especially the first 20 years of collecting, um, I'm, I'm really happy and proud to say that uh, my collection is, is large and I've always paid attention to condition. And I encourage the listeners to always buy the very best you can afford. 
I that is very sound advice because they will appreciate if you take care of them because Halloween isn't going anywhere and people absolutely love it, including us. Um, and right. speaking of uh, things that people love, you are on one of the most beloved television shows, American Pickers, and your expertise was needed for a vintage Halloween lantern, which I absolutely loved. If I, you know, came across something like that at a flea market, I would gravitate toward it instantly. What were your, well, first of all, what was your experience like and what was your impression of the object? The object was found, if, if my memory serves me right, it was a tin parade lantern made around 1910 and it was found in an old barn maybe in Yes, Maine. that sounds right. I think, yep. I think Mike and uh, 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 Frank at the time. Frank, thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah, Mike and Frank found it and uh, then uh, they, they sent it back to Iowa and I was contacted by one of the show's producers and uh, he was just looking for somebody that could tell him what that object was and he found me through my website he gave me a call and I talked to him and I told him precisely what the item was and he was happy with the level of expertise that I had I guess and he asked me if I would be willing to appear on the show and let me tell you that my experience with American Pickers was 100% positive. They were just complete. And I never met Frank or Mike. I spent time, a lot of time with Danielle in their uh, Iowa showroom, I guess, their, their, their headquarters. Yes. And uh, I was just treated so well. It was a lot of fun. They flew me out. They put me up in a hotel. They had a driver for the day that I was out there and they, they did the shoot. And what's interesting is if you watch the segment, the segment I think goes for something like eight minutes or you know, something like that, eight, seven, eight minutes, but it took seven hours to film. I believe it. <laughs> yeah. And it was fun. I mean, it was really, really fun. But when, when you're exposed to television production like I was then, you realize that a lot of it is just stop and start, stop and start. Let's yeah. try to get this take. And then somebody splices it all together and they, the sound has to work right and the lighting has to be right. And it just takes time. And I didn't really, I, I, I mean, I knew it intellectually that it's something that takes time, but I, I was surprised really yeah. that the, you know, the day started around nine and I really wasn't done until about four ish, something yeah. like that, but it was a lot of fun. And, and I'll tell you that American pickers uh, back then, I don't know how they are now, but I mean, back then at 16 or so completely professional organization, yeah. a real credit to the genre. And if they ever need, Halloween expertise on their show again. I sure hope they call me because that experience was fantastic. Hear that, American Pickers? So you know where to find Mark. <laughs> um, and, right. and Mark, what was the valuation on that, if you recall, that, that vintage? Because that was not a cheap item. That was... No, it wasn't. <laughs> No, and I, I, you know, I think I said, I, I haven't watched the segment in a long time. I think I said something like 600. Yeah. But it was very bad shape. It was really, really rusty, had lost all of its paint, had none of its inserts. And so it was pretty rough. But in 2016, I think when that segment was filmed, 
it was just after, and in fact, maybe prodded by that segment, that the 10 parade lanterns as a market segment began to skyrocket. And so today, even a roached one, one that meaning one has a lot of paint loss and is, you know, not the best, it it will bring 1800 or more dollars. And if you've got one that has original paint, shiny still has its finial, has all the inner workings where a candle would be when you crack the thing open, you're looking at three thousand to four thousand dollars and that was not the market in 2016 at all you're right i mean i see it with things such as blow molds and noisemakers i mean they're going up so you know it's those uh, those unusual items that maybe didn't fetch the value back then are appreciating now for sure absolutely and brian you make a great point about blow molds so blow molds were produced by a range of companies basically from about 1968 to 1970, somewhere right around in there. And they used to just be market laggards, right? You'd go into an antique mall and there's all the blow molds and they'd be $20 or $18 and they would just sit year after year. And then something changed uh, maybe five years ago. And today, blow molds, uh, they, they still don't bring tremendous money although there are a few designs that bring 300 400 dollars right most of them bring 80 70 80 bucks right they're they're avidly collected and they are really cool and 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 they're of a certain size and then large blow molds began to be created about 1997 through about 2001 and they were made to go outdoors uh to to decorate porches or what have you. And so you always know by size, when you see a blow mold and the blow mold's sizable, you know that it's from that era of, you know, late nineties, very early two thousands. Whereas the little ones that measure 15 inches, 16 inches high, something like that, right away, you know that those are vintage blow molds from the late 60s maybe into the very early 1970s and it is a market segment that has gone uh varies it's gone up strongly relative to what the starting prices were tin is another market segment that's odd in that tin is very common because it's long lasting and tambourines have held their value over the decades but most of the common noisemakers, horns and that sort of thing, they're sea level items that have really not kept up with the market. Mm-hmm. But saying that, there are noisemakers that are rarely seen and they bring very strong dollars when they come to market. I, I'm so no- it's just yeah. like anything. Yeah, I'm noticing the same thing with the plastic costumes with the you know the rubber band on the back, the Universal Monsters, the Creature from the Black Lagoon, Dracula. I mean, I see those prices climbing as well. Uh, and I, I believe that was around the 60s as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, I'm sure you're right. Now, c- costumes are is not uh, a market segment that I've ever gotten into. There's certain things that I... Right. Never gravitated toward to uh, toward one of them was hard plastic, and I've remedied that by now. I do collect um, 
material that not all of it but some of that was produced by this wonderful company in indiana long out of business called coca mold uh so hard plastic largely i've i've just uh, avoided um i don't collect postcards although i really appreciate them um and i don't collect costumes because they're hard to display they're yeah, hard to they store are. but some of them are absolutely fantastic and i've seen them and and i appreciate many of the ones that i see but my rule is in my house if i buy something i don't care if it's halloween or if it's any anything else that i collect the rule is it has to be displayed love that yeah and so i don't want stuff like postcards i have hundreds of postcards <laughs> but they're 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 postcards that i have for sale I don't collect them yeah. because what are you going to do with them? How are you going to display them? Right. Um, I don't want stuff that's just stacked in books. And so everything has to be displayed. And it's a really good rule uh, because I'll, I'll get something like I'll be tempted by a costume or a mask. I'll be like, mm, I don't know how I display that. Yeah. So I think I'll give it a pass. And it's a really easy decision. Great barometer, Mark. I love that. I should I should utilize that more often. And <laughs> that's a great rule for collectors out there, especially space conscious uh, collectors. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's a good rule. But I will always say the golden rule is you have to buy what you love. Yes. Yes, you do. That way, you know, if you're stuck with it, you're never sad. You'll always look that's around right. and smile. And that's what it's all about. That is that is what it's all about. Well said. Absolutely. It's the, it's the feeling in our bellies that our collections give us. That's why we do it. You know? That's right. I agree. <laughs> Mark, I have to tell you, this was an absolute pleasure. I cannot believe we're almost at 50 minutes. That just flew by. And I'm wow. so, I was so happy that, you know, I got to spend mischief night with you. And of course, I have to wish you a very happy Halloween. But I also want to remind our listeners one more time where they can find you. So do you want to give your website and your book information out one more time? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Brian. So my website is HalloweenCollector.com. And if you go on that site, there's a lot of information about vintage Halloween collectibles. Nothing else. That's, that's all it is. And if you're interested in the book, there is a tab on the website called Get Third Edition. And you can just scroll there and find out how you order the book. Uh, it's in the third edition. I'm not going to be doing a fourth. And I only have maybe 70 copies left. And when they're gone, they are gone. Wow. So you hear that. The, the next 70 people that listen to it, get on it and order the book <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and you're right. and you're going to want it because if you have any questions about halloween i'm telling you mark is your go-to guy and he's a very nice guy on top of that so oh, thank you Brian. Thank, thank you and i have this to has just been a lot of fun this has been so much fun and i have to ask you if you'd come back sometime so we can talk even more halloween absolutely you just let me know well that'll be wonderful i'm just going to ask you to hold on for one minute so i can thank you uh off air but you know this is brian hobson for footsteps in the attic and our halloween expert mr mark ledenbach we want to wish you a very happy and safe and scary halloween <laughs>